Hi, and welcome to Understanding Dysphagia Podcast, a 10-part series with Dysphagia Outreach Project. I am your host, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, regularly the host of First Bite, Fed, Fun, Functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. In honor of Dysphagia Awareness Month, the Dysphagia Outreach Project has pulled some of their phenomenal leaders together to share their knowledge with the world in hopes of raising awareness about dysphagia across the life continuum, as well as raising awareness regarding the dynamic volunteer work that Dysphagia Outreach Project does every day for individuals of all ages with dysphagia. And this episode is dedicated to infant airway disorders. I am like a thousand percent biased, but today is going to rock. So without further ado, please allow me to introduce today's guest. And y'all, I'm like completely fangirling over here. Dr. Raquel Garcia is a trained craniofacial speech language pathologist who is a core member of the Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital craniofacial team. She works in the acute care setting and the neonatal intensive care unit and pediatric cardiac intensive care unit. She graduated with her MS in communication sciences and disorders from Nova Southeastern University and her doctorate of speech language pathology from Northwestern University. Her clinical interests include upper airway disorders, infant feeding, neonatal care, and dysphagia, and all the evidence behind those things. So huzzah for evidence-based practice and clinicians who want to share. Dr. Rocky, thank you for coming today. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle. I'm so, that was such a nice introduction. You really made me blush. So thank you so much. And my middle name is is EBP, evidence-based practice. So Rocky, evidence-based practice, Garcia. That's going to be my new uh, tagline, you know, hashtag Rocky EBP. So that's yeah, me. <laughs> that, that's, that's great. Um, I, I don't have anything that fabulous. My family calls me spit because I look just like my dad, except I get my mustache waxed. So oh like, my gosh. <laughs> I love that. Oh my God. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. You're you for the win there, lady. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for having me talk today about an area I'm really passionate about. And I feel like I grow every day with the babies I serve and the families I work with. So it's a constantly evolving what I've known about infant airway disorders and how I'm treating them. So I hope that this can be like an open conversation that we can kind of just like brainstorm and think about how we can help these kiddos and their families thrive Yeah. So at the end of the okay. day. Okay. So can you take me back just a little bit and tell me how you became an SLP and focused in on this area? Like, cause I, I mean, everybody wants to know the backstory. We love the good backstory, but like why yeah. are you an SLP and one that specializes in this subspecialty area? Like, how? Okay. Well, fun fact, this is my second career. And Wait, what? I know. It's my second career. I was a paralegal for many, many, many years. And in my 30s, I decided I didn't want to be a, a paralegal anymore. And I wanted to do something to really touch people and work with individuals to help service them. So I was thinking about social work. I was thinking about physician assistant. And my husband at the time, well, I'm still married, but at the time he said, why don't, I know that sounds terrible what I just said. <laughs> my husband said, why don't you look into speech therapy? I think you would like to work with children with autism. He's like, I just see that in you. And I was like, okay. So I started taking the prereqs and I started really like volunteering even at that stage with working with children with autism and falling in with that population. In grad school, I start, I worked in our augmentative communication lab. So 
at that time, I truly envisioned myself working with AAC and individuals who are nonverbal. Okay. And not what you do. Not what I do, right? And I remember taking my dysphagia course, which I now work with my dysphagia teacher. I'm an adjunct at my old university, but um, he's going to hate me for saying this. But I, I was taking his course and I said, oh my God, I hate dysphagia. I don't even care about this course. I just, I'm going to coast. And I coasted. I really wasn't engaged. I didn't care. And then I was like my first or second rotation um, for my internship. It was in an acute care hospital. And I didn't understand the why of what an acute care therapist did. So even though I didn't have a passion for medical speech or acute care speech or anything like that, I said to myself, challenge yourself for a year and see if you can work in a acute care setting and understand this dynamic because I just couldn't get it. And, you know, remember, I'm an older student. I was in my 30s and I knew my passion was to work with nonverbal children and adults, but I really wanted to just give myself that chance to answer the why. My whole life is about answering whys. That's what I do. So I landed in a acute care position working with adults in pediatrics at one of our hospitals down here. It's a large hospital system in Florida. And I just fell in love with swallowing. It's like that guy that you're always ignoring, you know, in high school that you're like, I don't like you. I don't like you. I don't like you. And then one day, like five years later, you're like, I'm in love with you. And that's how I fell in love with swallowing, period. But then I started realizing the nuances and the challenges of working with babies who are medically complex and families that are going through probably the hardest things that they'll ever have to go through, being in the hospital, watching their baby learn how to breathe and watching their baby learn how to grow and learn how to feed. And I realized that was my why. That was my purpose. And that is what I'm forming my entire career on. (laughs) And that's the reason I went back for my doctorate, believe it or not, is, you know, my husband could have killed me going back for my doctorate at almost 40. (laughs) He was like, you're 40 years old and you're going back for your doctorate. Give it up. I was like, I know. But it was really so that I could answer what is our role in this specific type of area with medically complex infants. And I really wanted to find out how do I understand research better? How do I implement research better? Because I didn't want that gap to exist where researchers research and clinicians treat. I wanted to be a clinical scientist. So that's um, where I'm at right now, where I feel like I'm really embodying clinical science and, and trying to execute best practice as often as possible and generate the research as well. Well, thank you. I'm a nerd. I'm a nerd. I I can't help it. (laughs) But okay. So, but nerds move the world. And let's face it, there is a significant barrier between research to practice. The implementation science pieces, and I'm going to paraphrase my dear friend and coworker, Dr. Rebecca Wada, she works with me at Francis Marion University. Her her dissertation was on implementation science, how we take best practice and then put like from research and put it into clinical practice. Right. Oh my God. The girl's the girl. The woman is brilliant, (laughs) right? Um, Right. But- She's right. She referenced something and she was like, you know, it can take 20 years to move research into practice, but hell's bells, 20 years later, you've got new best practice, right? Exactly. And and that's just it. And you are in the business of serving infants right now in an NICU that we wouldn't have saved five years ago. And I'm in the business of providing services for them and early intervention and home health when they wouldn't have made it home. Exactly. And so y'all, if you're listening to this, please take away 
that you are only as good as the continual source of information that you pour into your cup every single day. And I highly recommend that you vet the sources of those information. And on that note, (laughs) yes. And on that note, a cute reel and a tick of the talk on Instagram and Facebook. Ain't going to cut it, ladies and gentlemen. Um, You can, I highly recommend that you pursue, if you have a philosophical question regarding best practice, did you know that for free, you can post a question on ASHA SIG 13, if you're a member. And And I'm actually a member at large for SIG 13. So anything pediatric feeding, I am, I am. So anything pediatric feeding, I will try to answer. And if I don't know, I will reach out to my counterpart who I took over for Kara Larson at Boston Children's or Kristen West, who's at um, Edinburgh. I mean, I'll ask anybody I know in the field. So, you know, we all work together. It's not, I don't even know these people face to face. I just know them through, you know, connecting and, and being vulnerable and saying, I don't know. And that's okay. So, yes. And y'all, I have seen game changing questions posted there. So go to the source. Also, I would love to volunteer if you ever need help. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. So before we just dive in, I will say that one of the challenges I have currently and I'm still working through is knowing when I'm reading an article, how I'm going to be able to implement it. You know, re- yes. and I think one of the reasons I've now embraced research methods as like my new bestie is that. I need to understand if the article, even if the article I'm reading has an amazing idea, an amazing thought process, I need to understand, is this the methodology of the study even something that um, is replicable? Is it even something that can be implemented? And what limitations does the study have? Because perhaps those limitations are why they got the results they got. So I always try to, you can't look at everything at face value. You have to really dig deep and Again, I am that speech nerd, but I am, you know, at the end of the day, it's not about me. It's about that baby at that time that I'm working with and their mom, their dad, their grandma, their caregiver, their foster mom, because that we're shaping little lives. And we have to remember our why is like airway safety, nutrition, and oral feeding development and protecting that brain at all costs. So that's my little shtick. So, all right. I love your sticks. Okay. All have right. all the sticks. That's good. But I call them squirrels because it's, I have an idea here. Let's go do this. Yes. Yes. Sticks and squirrels. Okay. Yes. So can you tell us what are some of the most common airway disorders for infants? So I think there's so many airway disorders that are out there. I think it's important to understand where the airway disorder is. So is it above the glottis? Is it at the level of the glottis or is it below the glottis? So I think before we dive deep into all the different types of airway disorders that are out there. It's important to understand just like normal infant breathing and then atypical infant breathing, if that's okay. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, like I'm this type of person that I like to like, you work with a patient that has, let's say a stroke and you're like, oh, they had an ischemic stroke. I like to find out why, right? Like what happened? What's normal about this situation? What's not normal? So that's why I always like to tie everything back to normal. And when I say normal, I mean typical developing infants, because if we don't know typical developing infants, it's so hard to really understand atypical because everyone looks atypical to us. You know what I mean? And, and Dr. McCradden, um, out of Minnesota, I believe. I forgot the university she works for. She's a great researcher. She's a PhD. She's doing a lot of research right now on normal feeding and swallowing and do normal babies aspirate. So be on the lookout for that. She presented at 
NAND this year, the National Association of Neonatotherapy, but understanding normal is so important across the lifespan, but especially with our babies. So is that okay if I talk about normal first? What do you think? Yes. Okay. Yes. I mean, I had two preemies. So like, I, I oh, mean- Oh, then you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I mean, they were 35 and 36 weeks, but I had labor stopped respectively with both of them. So like a lot. And so been there, done that. You're good to go, lady. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So like, I don't pretend to be a respiratory therapist. I don't pretend to be a pulmonologist. But anytime I'm around somebody that's a subspecialty, I ask them questions. And there's so yes. many times you're like, stop talking. Like, shh, shh. And they put their finger because they know I'm going to ask them a question. But I think that's the only way we learn and evolve to understand, is this a normal deviant for something that is not in our wheelhouse, right? Like we know feeding and swallowing, but do we know mobility? Do we know breathing? Do we know, you know, anything that's related to the baby? So, you know, infant breathing we know is different than maybe an adult because they're obligatory nose breathers, which means they're supposed to breathe out of their nose. So you could cover their mouth and they should be fine. If you ever work with a baby and they're not breathing out of their nose and you see a lot of mouth breathing, that should be a red flag to you. Periodic breathers are you breathe for three, you take three breaths, you pause, and that lasts about three seconds. That's typical that you're a periodic breather. You take those three breaths, you pause, typical breathing pattern. And then there's something called like respiratory rate, right? So how many breaths are you taking per minute? So typical for infants is different than adults. Adults, your breaths per minute, your respiratory rate should be like 20 to 30 breaths or lower versus a baby, it could be 30 to 60 breaths per minute. So if a baby is over that 60 breaths per minute, that's something called tachypnea. Some doctors will say they can go up to 70 breaths per minute, but if they breathe faster than that, that means they're like huffing and puffing and they're breathing super fast. They can't catch their breath. Think about brain maturation and blood flow and all those things that we want the babies to do to help them grow. So respiratory rate is something we need to kind of understand for normal infant breathing. And then these are like the atypical breathing patterns we see in our kiddos that might be like a little red flag to you. If there's mouth breathing, that's a red flag. That's like, hey, why are you mouth breathing, right? Could it be that they have a blockage in their nares? Could it be that they have an anatomical deviance, something to to, you know, dig deeper in. And to be honest, as a feeding therapist, we are sometimes the first people to catch that mouth breathing because we're feeding them with a nipple, either the breast or the bottle, right? So if they have a nipple or a bottle in their mouth and they're trying to breathe from their mouth, we're going to see it first than anybody else because we're going to see that they're struggling versus if they're just laying on their back, playing in their crib, no one may notice. You may see grunting or grasping their little nose. They might have some flaring of their nose. That might be like a soft sign that they're having some breathing issues. Strider, which is my all-time favorite. No, it's not my favorite, but it's something I see all the time. <laughs> like I look at babies yeah. everywhere. I'm like, she has Strider and she has Strider and everyone has Strider. But <laughs> yeah, I had a neonatal. I'm like, I, I hear everybody and they're like, oh, but it's a tongue tie. And I'm like, actually, no. Do you hear the strider? There's so much more going on. <laughs> Sorry. I had a neonatologist the other day tell me, I don't hear the strider. Call me when you hear it. And I was like, oh my God, I'm feeding a baby. I have to call you when I hear it. So I had to call him and he came and then he's like, oh, that's what strider is. And I'm like, yes. He's like, I get it now. But he knows what strider is. It's just, he thought that was just like 
the baby's deviance. But then when he heard the baby feeding on top of that breathing impairment, he said, oh, I get it now. So we know Strider is a high-pitched breast sound resulting from turbulent airflow in the larynx or lower in the bronchial tree, right? So it could be something anatomical going on that we can talk about a little bit for moving forward, like laryngomalacia or tracheomalacia or something that's kind of causing that high-pitched breast sound. Um, Sturder is something, is another red flag, and you don't want to get them interchanged because they are different, is a respiratory sound characterized by like a heavy snoring or gasping, and it's typically at the level of the pharynx. So how I tell parents if they can't identify it, and I know this sounds terrible, God forgive me, but I'll often say like, oh, they sound like a little piggy. They're snorting, right? They're, <laughs> they're making that noise. <laughs> I, but that's, you have to talk at a parent's level. You have to read your yeah. parent and understand that I can't talk to science and clinical to them. I have to talk at their level. It's their baby. And then the parent goes, oh my God, you're right. I hear it. And then I'll have a parent like actually take data for me while they're feeding if, the, if I can read the parent and see if they want to do that. But that way they can say how often is that stirter happening or that strider is happening. A baby may have retractions when they're feeding. So you may see like in their belly area, like their ribs pulling in really tightly or they're pulling backwards. Um, snoring in babies is not typical. So um, if you mm-hmm. ever see snoring in a child that's not typical, you should refer to otolaryngology or... Wait, um, hold on. Hold on. Y'all, not all ENT specialist treat child airway or infant airway. So don't send them to the ENT that only does like tubes in the ears, find the subspecialist. And if it's not in your small town, rely on the resources available to you. Feeding Matters does have a scholarship available to help get patients to um, medical needs and medical necessities. One of my dear friends had was a recipient of the scholarship that got over to Cincinnati Children's. Oh, that's amazing. Yes, it literally changed that child's outcome. So just remember that just like we have our weird areas of like focus, same for ENTs. Sorry. Oh, yes. yeah. It, no, and it's true. Some, South Carolina. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's true. There's otolaryngologists that all they do is upper airway or there's otolaryngologists that all they do is swallowing or all they do is sleep studies or, or I mean, there's many different subspecialties. So yes. I often tell parents if you ever question what they're saying and you think it's different than what others are saying, you know, it's okay to go to another otolaryngologist too, or to reach out to the National Association and things of that nature to see what's really happening. So so snoring during sleep is not typical. They mm-hmm. probably would need to go to an otolaryngologist that specializes in sleep disordered breathing and things like that. We talked about breath pausing earlier. So if they ever have breath pauses that are longer than 10 seconds, that's kind of an atypical pattern. And then again, that tachypnea, so that respiratory rate that's over 60 breaths per minute. Now that we know normal and atypical, it's kind of important to know the two different parts of your airway, which I'm sure we all know from grad school or we all know from medical school, but upper airway is your pharynx and your larynx. And then your lower airway is your trachea, your primary bronchi, and your lungs. So just understanding like today, I'm going to be really talking about your upper airway disorders Lower airway disorders can be a whole nother talk for a whole nother day. So we that's, know that's that. A, yes. <laughs> I'm just sitting here. I'm like trying to not take notes, but I'm taking notes because you're filling my cup. So thank you. <laughs> oh, no, this is great. And, you know, I will tell you, like, every day I learn from each parent and each child that I work with. So things that I say today, I may change tomorrow 
because of a patient that I'm working with. And anything I do, and I work with an, an, another amazing speech language pathologist who her specialty, her name's Courtney Lichtenstein. Her specialty is bronchopulmonary dysplasia, which is lung disease for babies. And there's things I learned from her that my mind gets blown. So I think we have to know our strengths, our opportunities for learning, and then knowing it's baby specific, everything we're doing. So lay it on us. What are, what are the, the, the common diseases? Yes. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> perfect. So we know that the babies are not smaller adults and knowing that babies are not smaller adults, we know that an upper airway disorder can be at the level of the larynx at above the level of the larynx or below the level of the larynx. So if it's above the level of the larynx, common upper airway disorders you may see. Now there's something in that you might've heard before where it says horse, zebra unicorn, right? So horse means these are the most common. I know I have all these little ditties that I say, but I've learned these ditties from other people. So, so we know that horse is like your most common type of upper airway disorder you may see. And then your zebra is the one that's not the most common. And then unicorn is like, you never see it. So don't always go to the unicorn. It could be the horse. Just keep that, you know, in your mind. So I'm going to talk about the horses today, just to make it very clear. If you're looking at an upper airway disorder above the level of the larynx, the baby might have coinal stenosis or coinal atresia. What that is, is remember I talked about babies are nose breathers, obligatory, they don't breathe from their mouth. So oftentimes there's a congenital absence of the openings between the nasal cavity and the nasal pharynx. This can be unilateral or bilateral, and that's coinal atresia. If there is stenosis going on, it means that instead of there being an absence of openings, it's just very, very, very narrow and stenotic. And like it's like trying to put a straw through a, a needle thread. Like it's very, very hard to do. So it makes it hard for the baby to breathe. It's typically onset at birth. You'll see stertor. You'll see some noisy mouth breathing. And typical behaviors you'll see is it's hard for them to have a good state regulation. So it's hard for them to have that nice, quiet, alert state. It's hard for them to go into that nice sleep state because they can't breathe, so they can't maintain their state. Basically, y'all, the air, the nose isn't connected to the throat. To translate that into layman's terms. Oh, thank <laughs> you. Yes. Yeah, You're sorry. <laughs> that, that's, that's my superpower is code switching there. Yes. I love yes, it. Yes, yes, Help yes. me out. <laughs> Helping a sister out. I love it. So these, these kiddos typically have like poor sleep hygiene, meaning that they might sleep for like small, like little, you know, pet cat naps, but then wake up for long periods of time because they can't breathe and then go back to that sl- small cat nap. So they never are fully rested. So they might be irritable. They may have like decreased tone because they're just so irritable and exhausted. They also may have decreased upper extremity and trunk tone because there might be more of a tone component to it as well. Related diagnoses that you may see with it, it could be isolated, right? And I'm not a geneticist. I don't pretend to be, um, but I love genetics. I think it's something that's super interesting. So maybe for my fifth fifth uh, career change, I'll go into genetics. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, Our world needs you. Please stay. <laughs> I love every, I love this, this field so much. So common genetic diagnoses you would see is like charge syndrome, craniosynostosis, which could be different types. There's like mectopic, sagittal. There's all different types of craniosynostosis. The baby can have Cruzon syndrome, Pfeiffer syndrome, or Treacher-Collins. Those are just common genetic diagnoses that accompany coenal atresia. 
And then surgical intervention, um, typically ENT, the otolaryngologist, determines when the baby is appropriate for intervention. So they look at all of the baby's medical comorbidities. So all of the baby's diagnoses, and they determine when is the best time to do the surgery. They may have to put nasal trumpets in, which are like little stints to help open up the nose. And if they have to do surgical intervention to open the coina, it might have to be repeated a few times because depending on the baby and their healing, sometimes they become stenotic or become a, you know, have atresia again, just depending on the baby. So um, sometimes if they can't do the surgery too early, and this is rare, but sometimes they'll have to place a tracheostomy. Sometimes, not too common. Another one that you might see often for upper airway disorder above the level of the larynx is micro or retronaphia. And I feel like I see that a lot in my hospital, but it could be like the patients we serve. We're a pretty large unit and we get all, we're the transfer hospital. So all the babies get transferred to us. Are you like a level four NICU? We're not a level four. We're a level three, but I, I feel like that's just on paper because we do everything that a level four does except ECMO. And ECMO, our PICU does ECMO really well. So all of our babies who need ECMO just go up there. Um, we have a very robust cardiac unit. So that's where all our babies go. The NICU here in town has ECMO and I've picked up a couple patients after discharge from it. And it is oh, yeah. profound, the pharyngeal stage dysphagia that they have after ECMO. But I mean, they've survived. Yeah, they've so survived. Yes, yeah. yes. And yes, for yes, those yes. of you All who right. don't know about ECMO, ECMO is basically a heart and lung bypass machine. And I, anytime I talk about ECMO, I get goosebumps because it's essentially you're not alive. And this machine's doing everything for you. So your body can rest, your body can heal. And during COVID, this is what saves so many patients from dying. So I think whoever invented ECMO, which I don't know the history behind it, like COVID, we need to thank them because it saves so many friends and family out there because of that. So, but you never want your babies on it because think about all that deconditioning and all the different types of your body's not perfusing blood the same. I mean, so many things can happen. But anyway, that's another talk for another day too. ECMO and feeding. That's a long talk too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're, mm-hmm. we're just writing a list of what we need to do, Michelle. We have like all these- to say- we're going to have like a frequent flyer guest thing over on First Bite Lady. <laughs> like, oh my I'm gosh. Like, yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. You know how I look at like all these medical words, like we're talking about micro and retronaphia. I look at medical words and I break it down because I'm not smart. I just know how to make things easier for me to understand. So micro we know means small, right? So small jaw, naphia is jaw. And then retro is back. So like you have a retracted jaw, basically. So baby could have one or could have both. And what happens is these type of kiddos may have this and it occurs at the level of base of tongue. Their jaw is small or their jaw is retracted. Their base of tongue is retracted or downward displacement up into the, we're near the palate. So they have something called glossioptosis because their tongue is up and far in the back of their throat and then they can't really breathe. So you'll hear stirter, you'll hear that noisy mouth breathing because their tongue doesn't have a lot of room to go anywhere because they have a small jaw or they have a retracted jaw. Things that you'll see, like typical behaviors, is um, periods of their skin turning like gray or, or blue during rest or even during feeding. And that's due to lack of oxygen. That's called silical cyanosis. And then they might have poor feeding because... They have this small jaw, retracted jaw, and it's hard for them to drop their tongue, create tongue cupping, elevate their tongue, and retract their tongue to do that good, you know, feeding dance that we all expect. Do you see them when they have the mandibular procedure? Was it mandibular osteogenesis? 
yeah, distraction. the mandibular yeah. distraction. Oh yeah, we have we we work with them beforehand. Um, sometimes we'll even do a baseline swallow study if we feel like it's something that's going to give us more information. And then we do, you know, typically we work with them after, and then we help mom or caregivers transition to home, so that way we can protect feeding as much as possible and try to minimize any of that oral sensory stress that they're going to um, obtain because we know it's so painful. Um, so yeah, for sure. If we have a baby that has this micro retronathia and they have glossotosis and we think in our mind's eye, oh, maybe they have some tethered oral tissue. We want to really use multidisciplinary team to discuss our concerns because their tongue may actually be protecting their airway. Even if we think there's a, a tightness there, we need to talk with the medical team because we could cause an occlusion of their airway. So we have to really remember it's a team approach. Mom's caregivers and the baby are at the center of that. So we always have to, you know, talk to the team. Related diagnoses that we might see could be like Pyruban sequence, craniosynostosis, Treacher Collins. And then this is not a genetic diagnosis, but it is an ICD-9 diagnosis, laryngeal malaysia, which we'll talk about soon. So how can we help these type of kiddos? Prone positioning is a big one that we do and our docs do in the hospital where instead of the, or side lying. So instead of them being on their back and supine, you put them on their side to help them breathe and create an airway, or you put them prone because that's going to help with gravity where their tongue can fall forward and they can breathe. That's why we have to always talk to the medical team before we make any decisions about any type of interventions. The surgeons may decide on a tongue-lip adhesion. That's where they take the tongue, they pull it forward, and they adhere it to the lip just so that the child can breathe. But if they do that, they're not always successful with feeding. I have picked them up. I had a two-and-a-half-year-old that had Pierre Rubin who had a tongue-lip adhesion, and she had a undiagnosed – she had something else going on. And Mm -hmm. when her teeth came in – it mm-hmm. lacerated the bottom of her tongue. Oh, poor baby. And it was oh. awful. They ended up having to send her to a different children's hospital. And But, I mean, they, she had such a delayed on like eruption of her infant teeth. I mean, they yeah. just didn't come in. So when they finally came in, they had no idea the irregularity in shape. So, guys, make sure that that's why we don't practice as silo clinicians. This is why you constantly communicate with the team. But, yes, that's – all right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and I will talk about resources at the end of this talk today. Like we we listen. I'm in I'm in South Florida, so I'm in a huge, you know, it's a big city. But I talk to therapists throughout the world, and when I say throughout the world, I I've met people and talked to people more throughout the world than seeing people face to face. It's all about asking questions, connecting, and then sharing information because. Maybe you know a little tidbit that somebody doesn't, and then they share something with you, and then you create new knowledge. So it's all about elevating each other. So, yeah. So that tongue lip adhesion. And then at the end, they may have that mandibular distraction where they're taking the jaw and they're pulling it forward to help airway patency. So So help the baby breathe better. Back in the day, like many, many moons ago, they used to always give these babies tracheostomies. Now that's very, very rare that they have to do that. There are some cases still with retronathia, micronathia. They may still give them a tracheostomy, and that's a team decision on why they do that. I had a baby recently, they did that, but the baby had so many medical comorbidities that they had to outweigh the positives and the negatives, and this was the only way to help the baby. So, you know, it's all about a team making the decision for the baby. We talked about upper airway obstruction at 
above the level of the larynx. Let's talk a little bit at, at the level of the larynx, which is my favorite. Yes, please. <laughs> Thank so, you. <laughs> laryngomalacia, that is your horse. That's the one you're going to see like everywhere you go. You're like, oh, laryngomalacia, laryngomalacia, I see you. And again, as trained speech language pathologists, we are often the one driving the bus and informing the medical team, this is what we were suspecting. And this is what's impacting the kiddo. Because we have to remember that pediatric feeding disorder and dysphagia are symptoms of something bigger, typically. It's not the primary cause. It's something bigger. So we have to remember, like, what is the primary diagnosis that's causing this impairment? So we know that laryngomalacia is a congenital softening of the tissues of the larynx. The most common feature people will talk about is noisy breathing. It happens at the supraglottis, so like right above the glottis. The laryngeal structure is typically a little malformed or floppy. It causes the tissues to kind of fall over into the airway and partially block it. Maybe not always. It could be more pronounced during feeding or more pronounced during sleep. Those are things that as a team, we have to kind of collect data and make a diagnosis. So for breathing characteristics, and the reason I keep going over these breathing characteristics is that when we're documenting in inpatient, outpatient, home health, telepractice, we have to talk about their characteristics so that way we can help drive insurance to compensate the family to see other providers. Because we know that insurance can be challenging and we need to have that supporting evidence to help the families. So breathing characteristics that we might see is stirter, strider, like a congestion that we can't really understand why, like a wet congestion or a congestion that we hear when they're, they're just resting. They may have like difficult sleep hygiene again, hard for them to like rest because they're constantly trying to breathe. They may be having like limited behaviors when they're feeding. What do I mean by that? I mean that they want to eat. They're showing all those good hunger cues. And then when you feed them the bottle, you can hear that they're struggling to breathe. And then they themselves, even though they're so hungry, stop. Because babies are so wicked smart. Like they know, hey, breathing comes first. I can't breathe. I have to stop. So we have to kind of say, hey, this baby is presenting with self-limiting behaviors characterized as blah, blah, blah. You know, maybe there's a bigger picture of why. And oftentimes these babies get admitted into the hospital, into our medical surgical unit, you know, as failure to thrive. And we get consulted just for poor feeding. And then we tell the team, hey, I think they have laryngomalacia. I can't diagnose that. So I can't say that. Or I can describe what I'm seeing. Y'all, we are not allowed to diagnose laryngomalacia, trachomalacia. We can say, I'm hearing the signs and symptoms up. Right. And that I, I cannot stress that enough. Sorry, I've seen that a lot on patients' charts. And I'm like, we also can't diagnose ARFID. That's a psych disorder. Right, That's not right. us. Sorry. Right. Yes. No, and we have to like just describe what we see, right? So even if I, I'm not a physical therapist, but if the kid is toe walking, I will describe what he's doing so I can refer him to the right provider. We don't look at the child from neck up. We look at them from head to toe. I mean, anywhere we practice, and I get a little preachy, so can I get an amen, right? But oh, any- yes, yes. I'm sitting over here, like, literally sitting on my hands, like, uh-huh, uh-huh. saying all the right things, mama, yes. But we always have to remember whoever we're working with from birth to geriatric, we have to look at them from head to toe. So common genetic diagnoses that you might see with laryngomalacia could be, like, peer band sequence. It could be a trisomy, trisomy 21. Often they will have some characteristics of laryngomalacia, micronathia, retronathia. 
Oftentimes, otolaryngology likes to do a wait-and-see approach because oftentimes, from their perspective, the child will grow out of it as they mature. So they might put them on anti-reflux medications, put them on precautionary, like aspiration precautions. Some physicians will do a supraglottoplasty, which is a surgery to essentially reduce the redundant tissue that's causing this laryngomalacia. But we know that babies that typically have laryngomalacia will have some microaspiration before and after surgery. So depending on your otolaryngologist, we have to just come up with a plan to know. And I have amazing otolaryngologists I work with, but they all have different perspectives on do these babies go home feeding or do we send them home on an NG tube? I mean, there's, we always have to know how comfortable are we with letting the child microaspirate or not. That's a whole another talk for another day. But that's just something to remember that they're, they're likely going to aspirate a little bit. My dear friend, we need, <laughs> thank you for being a speech pathologist. Continue. Sorry. Oh yes. <laughs> I'm just a speech nerd and I, you know, I'm kind of thankful my husband's not home right now because I could, I can envision him rolling his eyes because this is what I do all day. Like I just, I'm like, oh my God, did you know? And he's like, stop, talk about something else. Yeah. My patients send me pictures of their like diapers. Well, not the patients, but the parents, like mm-hmm. the contents of their diapers. And they're like, can you believe how much phlegm is in? And my, mm-hmm. and my, my oldest, when he was a little guy, he was like, mom, they need a second opinion. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> yes, they do. But if the six-year-old knows you need a second opinion, then like, yeah, rawr, but continue. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So after the ring of Malaysia, like the next horse you may see is a laryngeal cleft and like, again, where I work, they're a little bit more common, but you may not see them as often as you think, or you may be the one diagnosed, not diagnosing them, but referring them out because oftentimes they get a late diagnosis. I know that sounds crazy to think that a laryngeal cleft can get misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed, but it could. So essentially a laryngeal cleft occurs from the larynx to the trachea. There's like a little, you know, the tissue is not really formed connecting, you know, where that is at. And it's typically something that occurs at birth and sometimes it can go under at diagnosed and the child may get diagnosed with like asthma and allergies and like chronic aspiration and they don't know why. Then we have to take it to the next step and go, hey, this child looks normal every other way except they're aspirating. Perhaps they need to go to an otolaryngologist. Perhaps they need to get bronched. Perhaps they need to get their airway checked. Like obviously I don't say any of that like that. I say it in a nice referral way using speech terminology to, to say how the patient's presenting. Y'all, I see this a lot in the world of early intervention and outpatient is that for some reason, the patient comes home on slightly thickened liquids or a slower flow rate bottle nipple. And then over time, I mean, it can go on till they're two, three, four. There was a killer lecture at ASHA a couple of years ago. And forgive me, I cannot remember the name of the author, but it was actually, she was from Florida the presenter. And she said that we're missing level one and level two clefts, especially in our Down syndrome population, because what happens is the tissue so naturally endematous that mm-hmm. the tissue fills that gap in. Right. And then the patient gets placed on a short course of steroids or antihistamines, and it dries it up that opens that cleft up even more. And those clefts can be tricky to find. So it's not like you can go in for like a flexible scope in office and they're going to necessarily find these. Like they right. have, often these patients have to be sedated. So if right now on your caseload, you have a patient that is aspirating thin liquids only and nobody can figure out the why, send them to a craniofacial team who specializes or an ENT that specializes in, in laryngeal clefts. This is, it's common, but it's, Absolutely. It's a horse, but you got to find the person that knows 
you know, that they're looking right. at a mare versus a mule. You know what I mean? And I, yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, I think we have to remember that our specialty is feeding and swallowing. Like we, this is what we know, right? We're the experts. And oftentimes, well-intentioned physicians send them to us because they say, okay, they're going to help them get better and help the baby feed. But oftentimes we have to send them back because it could be something medically based, right? Remember feeding and swallowing impairments are a symptom of something bigger that the medical team has to figure out. How many times have our parents said, nobody can figure out why he's like this. Nobody can identify what's going on. And we just kind of truck along with therapy and we're like, oh, wow, that really stinks, right? I'm, I'm guilty of it. I know I'm like, oh, yes. wow. Likewise. This is terrible. So it just, you know, knowledge is power. I can't tell you enough. Like it's so important to build relationships with your physicians and your providers and knowing how to foster those relationships in a way that we're not telling them what to do. We're saying, this is what I do. And I want to help your patients get better, right? Like you want them to know, oh, if I send my baby to Rocky, I know they're getting like they're going to, if they come back, I know there's a reason, right? It's not like we're over referring them and we, we want the physicians to know we're helping their patients at all costs. So laryngeal clefting, we know that there's four types of laryngeal clefting. Again, that breathing pattern can be like stertor or strider. They typically have poor weight gain, recurrent pneumonias that may get overdiagnosed as asthma, feeding difficulties. They may be diagnosed with allergies, but it's really this recurrent pneumonia happening. And the four types are... There's a superglottic interretinoid defect, and that's the level of the cleft remains above the level of the true vocal cords. So that's a cleft, learned to cleft type one. I've had some ENTs tell me if they do a flexible scope in the office, they can identify it. I don't believe that to be true. And that's just me being, um, I don't know, like, I, I'm like cynical. I'm like, are you sure? Because I really don't think so. I'm like, I think you have to bronc that patient. And they're like, okay, yes. doctor. And I'm like, I'm not, no, no, I say it in a nice way, but I'm like, are you sure? Because I'm just like, can we just really do a bronc just to, you know, call it a day. But most yes. of my, I yes. mean, all of our ENTs are so phenomenal. And I think that, you know, we don't want to do anything too invasive to these kiddos, obviously, in hospital rates and, you know, especially in the age of COVID, we don't want to hospitalize any babies and get them at risk for being exposed to anything, but we have to do what's right. Uh, laryngeal cleft 2 extends below the true level of the vocal cords and partially into the cricoid cartilage. Laryngeal cleft 3 extends completely through the posterior cricoid cartilage, and then it can have a further extension into the cervical tracheoesophageal wall. And then you can have a, a laryngeal cleft four, which is a tracheoesophageal clefting extent into the thorax and may extend all the way down to the carina. That's also known as wide open spaces in my head. That's yeah. exactly how I think. I'm like, and everything oh, yeah. just pours straight in. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's just like, hey, everything's like, it's a party in my lungs, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, related diagnoses, you'll typically see a tracheoesophageal fistula. Uh, esophageal atresia, congenital heart defects or disease, they can have a genetic anomaly. And this is like one of the diagnoses that go along with it. Laryngomalacia, you might have opitz fry syndrome. These are very common that go with laryngeal clefting. So our role is to help the families, if it's not identified, help it get identified. But once it's identified, help with how can we help this baby learn to feed better, learn to feed and it feels good. It doesn't feel like they're, you know, like when babies aspirate, they know it and it hurts, you know, they don't like it. So those are just, you know, something to think about. If we're looking at upper airway obstruction below the level of the, the larynx, 
because I work in our cardiac unit, I'm going to talk a little bit about vascular rings. I would say those are like a zebra, but you may see them more than you think. And then we'll talk about tracheoesophageal clefting a little bit. And a tracheoesophageal fistula, actually, we'll talk a little bit about. So vascular ring, certain diagnoses you might see that more with than others. So trisomy 21, 22Q deletion syndrome, charge syndrome. And what a vascular ring is, is it occurs at the trachea and it's essentially a compression or obstruction of the esophagus. Okay. So it's compressing the esophagus. It typically happens at birth. And just like a laryngeal clefting, it could go undiagnosed. And again, this baby's aspirating. Nobody can figure out why. Oftentimes during the MBS, the radiologist may identify the, they think it's a vascular ring and then they may ask for another test to occur. I mean, these are reasons why we want to do instrumentation when the baby's ready to do it. So breathing, strider, they may have this like biphasic breathing, which sounds kind of like a washing machine. It's like, like kind of a biphasic type breathing. They may sound like they're rattling when they're breathing and they just have like coarse upper airway breathing. Like it just sounds like harsh and coarse. They typically have to have surgery to repair the vascular ring, but their behaviors you might see that are like your red flags where you can use as your, you know, infants presenting with atypical breathing pattern or atypical behavior. They have retractions. They get exacerbated breathing with feeding and swallowing or even just playing they have that recurrent pneumonia and they constantly sound like they're coughing or congested after feeding. And I'm just thinking like on our end, I have so many parents that are told that's just increased work of breathing or they're just having a hard time with this formula. That's why they're so congested. And then they do like the formula change, like 400 different formulas. And yes, it could be uh, a milk protein allergy or soy allergy, but it could also be all of these other things. Exactly. So, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, you know, I think that we just always have to like take a step back and think like what's going on with our babies? What, how can we help them? And then lastly, when we're talking about upper airway disorders below the level of the larynx, I'm going to talk a little bit about TE fistula and talk a little bit about what that could be. So you can have a laryngotracheoesophageal cleft or tracheoesophageal fistula. They're different, but they're kind of one and the same in how they kind of present. And that it can occur at the larynx or the trachea. Typically, again, it can be at birth, but it could go undiagnosed. Typical diagnoses you'll see with it is like Down syndrome, um, Vactoral syndrome, which is VAC. T-E-R-L. What that is, is, and you'll see that often when a baby's born with a TE fistula, they'll often say if the baby's meeting the criteria for vectoral. So V stands for vertebrae anomalies. A stands for imperfect anus or anal atresia. C stands for any cardiac anomalies that may be seen. TE stands for tracheoesophageal fistula, which we know is that the connection between the trachea and the esophagus is, you know, there's a little hole between it. R stands for renal or kidney anomalies and L will stand for like limb anomalies. So you may see like some agenesis of the bones or something like that. Again, I'm not geneticist, but I just know that there are so many of these medical comorbidities 
have feeding impairments that I like to know about them. I like to learn about them because I know that these kiddos may come on my caseload and then I have to say, oh, let me help mommy guide her way through the system if I can, that type of thing. And we know these kiddos, you know, they need surgery to repair it. They may get a G2 prophylactically if they can't be fed to their stomach right away. It doesn't always happen though. And they often have to get their esophagus dilated, like dilated, because they get the surgery and at that, where the surgery occurs, it can get very narrowed because the mucosa and everything is healing. So oftentimes these kiddos are doing well, they're swallowing well, you did a swallow study, and then you get a consult, oh, they're vomiting, they're coughing, they're choking, you do a repeat swallow study, and you see that narrowing occurring, and then the doctor has to go in and dilate them a little bit more. And that happens common with T. fistulas. And, you know, with those type of kiddos, you'll see those same type of behaviors, retraction, persistent coughing, pneumonia. So just something to be on the lookout. Sometimes the fistulas aren't y'all, they come home and they may not have always been diagnosed. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. That, that is absolutely critical. So if you have the kid on your caseload that maybe, maybe they came home with like a G tube from the hospital, right? Especially for our early intervention folks or outpatient peds folks, but yet they keep getting reoccurrent pneumonias. You're going to need to follow that back up because this is, The hugest breakdown I have seen is that a lot of times the community-based clinician, when we have like zero to limited to no access to medical records, right? And it sucks and I would love to, that's a whole nother freaking soapbox on another day, right? (laughs) But we assume, a lot of us, especially when we're super green, assume that all of these diagnoses are determined in the NICU, PICU before the discharge, but they're not. It is the community-based therapist putting together signs and symptoms. It is the phone calls that you make in in the appointment sessions the phone calls that you make in the car on the way to the next patient's house that actually drive these, the confirmation of these diagnoses and disorders. So if you have a kid where you're left scratching your head, don't perceive that as a reflection on the therapeutic skills that you're presenting with. It could be that truly the medical etiology has not been uncovered by the medical team and they're reliant on you as the PFD, the feeding, swallowing person on the team to relay that information back. Right. I work in the NICU and the PICU. I think at the end of the day, we get like this glorified, like, oh my God, you work there. No, the people in the community do the hard work. Okay. We just stabilize the baby and kind of get them eating and, and hope and pray they continue that when they go home. The The community speech language pathologist that is working with these kiddos either in their house or outpatient or telepractice anywhere. That's the one that's truly making, and I might get like flack from my NICU therapist, but that those are the people that are truly making the difference in the family's lives. Like we spend the most time with these children and their families more than the physicians, more than any other provider that oftentimes we have to be their voice and we have to remember, and this is getting a little off topic, but there's health inequity out there and there's, you know, food insecurity. And there's so many things that our families are going through that they're afraid to ask for help. So we have to remember it's more than just, you know, you have a script that you're treating the patient It's not cookie cutter therapy. It's very patient specific therapy that we have to remember, how are we going to help this patient at this moment, at this time? And can we, can we keep the momentum going and help support them throughout whatever the course may be? So if you, if you ever feel like you're stuck, you don't know what to do, email me 
if I don't know, I will find someone for you. And I promise you, I have people contacting me all the time and I try my best to, to help them because it's not me helping you. It's helping someone's little baby boy or daughter learn to eat and swallow because that's what every mom and dad wants their kid to do. So that's my little thing too. So anywho, I, don't, I think, I think I, I feel like someone's going to email me and be like, you are crazy. Stop talking. No, honey, this is throw the tomatoes at us y'all because what she is speaking on is the truth of the matter. Okay. So here's my big picture. And I will say this because I'm opinionated, right? Everybody thinks I'm opinionated, but this is based in fact. Okay. So everybody (laughs) jumps on the PFD wagon because it's cool, right? Like this looks cool. And how often did you actually get a PFD lecture in grad school? I didn't. Let me tell you, I teach dysphagia now for two universities. And the other day I skimmed over pediatric feeding disorders and I yelled at myself. I'm like, oh my God, I'm that person that's like skimming over because I don't have time. I don't have time to go over it. Yeah, it's terrible. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I did at our university, Dr. Norman teaches the dysphagia class, but I got three days just to talk about PFD. But in the course of a semester, I mean, you have what, 12 weeks of academic rigor and then I got three days, but that's three days more than what I got, but that's the state of the world. So that means that you're going to graduate, you're going to go out, hopefully you had a killer clinical practicum site where you learn some of the stuff firsthand evidence-based, but how many of you went out into the world as a peds dysphagia therapist with zero clinical practicum site, zero academic courses, and basically replicated what you saw your colleagues doing? If you replicated what you saw your colleagues doing in practice or on a viral video, then you need to reassess what it is that you're doing because that's not evidence-based practice and that sucks to hear it aloud. Y'all, I was the queen of all things plastic and vibrating, right? Because that's what I was taught by my colleagues. But then I started doing the research and realizing that I was missing the greater etiologies on these patients. And once I started looking and actually doing a comprehensive root cause analysis on what the known diagnosis was, what the potential comorbidities were, what interprofessional practice partner I needed to refer the patient to and why. And once the child got to a medical management, because we can't fix laryngomalacia, trachomalacia, we can't fix a laryngeal cleft. But once they're at a point of healing And then we can go in and focus on improved quality of those oral feeds. Y'all, then they're set for success. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, that takes me back to like reminding myself and reminding to whoever's listening today. And if I touched anybody like with my little little tidbits. You know, I'm growing every day too. So please reach out to me if you think there's something that I can add to my toolbox. But I think at the end of the day, it's so important to understand like, what is our why? Like, why are we here at this moment working with this baby and this family? And, you know, I think that's the biggest thing. And I've done things in my practice that now I look back and I cringe because that's what I was taught. And that it's okay. It's human. And it's you being transparent to saying, I don't know everything. And me, Raquel Garcia, uh, SLPD, OPP, you know me, whatever you want to say, I can tell you that I don't know everything. I know 
a smidget of, of what we can do. And I, I wish I knew everything because I want to help my families, but I grow every day, you know, every day. So why are we here? We're here to habilitate normal feeding development, right? We really want to promote oral feeding development in a positive, normal, sequential way. We want to make those families feel independent and empowered. So parent autonomy and education is number one. So I always make a, like one or two or three or four or 10 parent goals in my plan of care because parents matter. They're the center of our therapy. They're the center of our medical team. We want to decrease negative experiences that could impact the bigger picture for this child because we might see them for three months, eight months, two years, but it's that person's child forever. So we want to try to decrease any negative experience because we know experiences matter for these kids. And at the end of the day, we have to advocate. We have to have to advocate. And I know people don't like Dr. Seuss right now, but I, I still like him a little bit. So I just want to say a little quote he has. And he says, and I'm sorry if I offend anyone because it is Dr. Seuss, but he says, unless someone likes you or cares a whole lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. So we have to advocate. We have to care. And sometimes we have to be uncomfortable and dig deep and, and be uncomfortable in the situation to learn more. So that's all I'm going to say today. If anyone has questions and wants to learn more, please let me know. I'm always willing to talk all things feeding and swallowing and medical and, you know, nerd out. Let's nerd out together. You're a goddess. Thank you. <laughs> you're freaking fantastic. Thank oh, you. You're, you're too kind. No. Thank you. If someone listening is interested and wants to volunteer with Dysphagia Outreach Project, can you suggest how they can reach DOP, what social media rep platforms, how they can follow y'all. Okay. So if you go onto Instagram under Dysphagia Outreach Project, so you will find us there. You can follow us. We have a very robust um, Instagram following and a lot of great resources that are out there for families and clinicians. And then also, if you're interested in volunteering, I am the manager of education. So I work directly with our director of education, Kristen West. And we, along with another colleague of ours, Jeanette, we're compiling family caregiver handouts that we can give to family families in layman's terms so they can understand things all pediatric feeding and swallowing. So if you're interested in creating a material, volunteering that way, please message me and we will start the process. Thank you. And seriously, every day, y'all, Dysphagia Outreach Project helps people across the life continuum. So they put they put the resources and the materials in their hands so that no patient has to go without. And they have their cup runneth over with donations from all of the amazing leaders in the world of dysphagia. So I highly recommend it. And this is all volunteer based. No one gets a paycheck. And it's all to help patients and help families. So if you have a family in need, please send them our way. If we can, we'll try to help them. Hey, friends. Thank you so much for listening to Understanding Dysphagia. Remember that if you'd like to earn credit for this episode, complete the accompanying audio course registered for ASHA CEUs on speechtherapypd.com. And if you are interested in joining speechtherapypd.com, I have some exciting news. This month, in honor of Dysphagia Awareness Month, June 1st to June 30th, 2021, for every registration with speechtherapypd.com that uses the coupon code capital D, capital O, capital P for Dysphagia Outreach Project, 
$10 will come off every single subscription, every price, whether you want the little package or the big package, and that $10 will in turn be donated to Dysphagia Outreach Project. So if you want this episode that grew your evidence-based practice to pay it forward a little bit more, join speechtherapypd.com and don't forget to use the coupon code DOP for Dysphagia Outreach Project. Happy learning, y'all.